Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Oh, today's topic is near and dear to my heart because it involves a name we have invoked on the show before, that being John Henry Pepper, as in Pepper's Ghost the famous and much-loved stage illusion, which continues to be used today. We'll talk about that at the end. But while the ghost, as it was called often by Pepper and during his time, kind of dominates his life story, there is some other very interesting stuff in his biography. Uh, there are several professional disagreements. There's some world travel. And then there's even an attempt to control the weather. So he's kind of a good off-ramp for me to work on after Halloween times because... Ghost is in the story, but it's not the least bit actually ghosty. <laughs> yeah, we are we are recording this in October, but our October episodes have concluded. Yes. John Henry Pepper was born in 1821 in Westminster. His father, Charles Bailey Pepper, was a civil engineer. Pepper attended the first Londonborough house at Brixton and then the King's College School in London, And even as a young boy, he found chemistry completely fascinating. He and his friends would conduct various experiments of their own beyond their schoolwork, and Pepper later recalled that they broke a lot of lab glassware in the process. He also studied under chemist J.T. Cooper at the Russell Institution. And that love for chemistry and science never really dissipated. So when he was fresh out of school at age 19, a career in science was Pepper's only path of choice. And initially, this led him to work as a lecturer at the Granger School of Medicine. And he was made a fellow of the Chemical Society of London at the age of 22. Soon, he transitioned to the Royal Polytechnic Institution in London. And the Royal Polytechnic's mission was to offer, quote, an institution where the public, at little expense, may acquire practical knowledge of the various arts and branches of science connected with manufacturers, mining operations, and rural economy. This was basically where the latest science was showcased through public lectures and displays of things like diving bells and steam-driven machinery, and it was the perfect place for Pepper, who had started going there as a visitor before he became a lecturer there. He not only loved scientific exploration, but he really loved to share that excitement with others and demystify concepts that might otherwise seem elusive. And he felt like the best way to do that was through showmanship, turning lectures into entertaining visual spectacles. Working at the Royal Polytechnic was a defining aspect of Pepper's life and career. He gave his first lecture there in 1847, and in just a few short years, he had become the Polytechnic's analytical chemist, and then the school's director. Soon, he became known as Professor Pepper for his engaging lectures. He was sort of like the 19th century Bill Nye of London. Writing about this work in third person much later in his life, Pepper said, quote, the classes Mr. Pepper established were for the study of drawing, French, German, arithmetic, and mathematics, with, of course, chemistry and physics and pupils were admitted at very low fees in order to encourage the working men to attend. Yeah, late in his life, he wrote a book in which he quotes himself a lot, which I find fascinating, Um, and that is why it's in the third person. (laughs) Very tickled about this. Pepper soon gained a reputation for his ability to teach in innovative ways that were never dull, and as a consequence, he was also often asked to serve as a guest lecturer at various schools around England. 
He also wrote a book based on one of his lectures titled The Australian Goldfields and the Best Means of Discriminating Gold from Other Metals. He made the case in that book that moving to Australia offered the working poor of London a chance to make a better life than they might have in the overcrowded city. He also happened to have advertisements in that book. Those advertisements were for travel items that he listed in the text of the work as necessary for anyone moving to Australia to become a gold hunter. So a little bit of savvy business work that probably wouldn't pass standards today. As a lecturer, Pepper was also conducting his own experiments and inventing things, often as a means to illustrate scientific concepts. He was lecturing almost every day and forever working to innovate and entertain. He reportedly cooked a piece of meat during a lecture using two mirrors that were reflecting a charcoal fire to the food, showing the way that light can be focused. In 1863, he illuminated all of Trafalgar Square and St. Paul's Cathedral with arc light to celebrate the wedding of Albert Edward, Prince of Wales, to Princess Alexandra Caroline Marie Charlotte Louise Julia of Denmark. At some point in the 1850s, Pepper himself had married, although it's a little bit difficult to find details about his bride or the family they started. We know that his wife was named Mary Ann, but I could not find her maiden name. And they had a son whose initials were H.W., but I could not find his name. And that happened in 1856. His most famous project, which he worked on with an engineer from Liverpool named Henry Dirks. And if you are looking that up, it is spelled D-I-R-C-K-S. That's the illusion now known as Pepper's Ghost. This illusion is created with a plate glass sheet that reflects something from a room that's out of view of the audience. The glass is angled in such a way that the object or person out of view is seen by the audience as a reflection, and that makes it look pretty ghostly. Lighting is also used to maximize the effect. In his 1958 book, This is Magic, Secrets of the Conjurer's Craft, magician Will Dexter describes Pepper's ghost this way, quote, Have you ever carried a lighted candle to a dark window and looked out? What have you seen? Who is that other figure, surprisingly like yourself, carrying a lighted candle on the other side of the glass? That is Pepper's ghost. Now, this concept of using reflections to trick a viewer's eye into thinking it's seeing something that isn't there was not new in the mid-19th century. A very similar idea was described by Italian scholar Giambattista della Porta in 1558 in his book, Natural Magic, with the subheader, In 20 Books, wherein are set forth all the riches and delights of the natural sciences. That book was translated into English in the late 1660s, and it includes a chapter titled, How We May See in a Chamber Things That Are Not. Della Porta's description of this illusion reads in part, quote, Let there be a chamber whereinto no light comes, unless by the door or window where the spectator looks in. Let the whole window or part of it be of glass, as we used to do to keep out the cold. But let one part be polished, that there may be a looking glass on both sides, whence the spectator must look in. For the rest, do nothing. Let pictures be set over against this window, marble statues, and such like, for what is without will seem within, and what is behind the spectator's back he will think to be in the middle of the house, as far from the glass inward as they stand from it outwardly, and so clearly and certainly that he will think he sees nothing but truth. So this illusion, just 
pretty similar to what was described in that Italian text, was first shared in 19th century England in 1858 by Dirks at a British Association for the Advancement of Science meeting. He wanted to sell this idea, which he called the Dirksian phantasmagoria, to theaters. But his proposed setup required an entire retrofit of the building. Pepper would later write of Dirk's work, quote, This paper excited no attention because the explanation of it was somewhat vague and unsatisfactory. Pepper then further refined this concept so that it could be used in theaters without having to do a bunch of heavy construction. The first play it was used in was Haunted Man in 1862. This play, written by Charles Dickens, was performed at the Royal Polytechnic. And this use of this ghost imagery was a triumph, not only because the illusion worked perfectly, but because it also really helped the Royal Polytechnic when it needed something to grab the public's attention. In the wake of the 1862 Great London Exhibition, the Polytechnic had been flailing a little bit, as it just didn't really have anything new to show the public that they had not just seen at that expo. But the ghost worked like a charm. According to an account that appeared in an Australian paper much later in 1879, that was written in anticipation of Pepper traveling there, which we'll get to in a bit, quote, when the ghost effect was first produced at the Royal Polytechnic Institution, all sightseers were agog to behold the marvelous effects the newspapers recorded, and those of an ingenious turn of mind went again and again to try and solve the problem, including even such physicists as the late Professor Faraday, who at last had to ask for an explanation. Pepper's ghost ended up causing a rift between Dirks and Pepper, and we will talk about why after a sponsor break. <laughs> Though the ghost illusion had become deeply popular as a stage effect, for Pepper, it was also another opportunity to educate people about science and specifically about optics. This period of time was, as we have mentioned many times on the show before, a time when mysticism and spiritualism were very popular in England, and Pepper wanted to use the enthusiasm for supernatural subjects to get people in so he could teach them the ways that such interests could be exploited with tricks of science. The ghost was so popular that Pepper was asked to recreate it at Windsor Castle, and ultimately he toured Europe and North America, showing the ghost to amazed audiences and then explaining to them how their eyes were being deceived. The work of Dirks in creating the initial illusion and Pepper adapting it for practical use led to the two men filing a joint patent for it. That was granted on February 5th, 1863, but Dirks signed over financial rights. Here's Pepper's account of things given in a book 17 years later. Quote, Just before Christmas Day in 1862, I invited a number of literary and scientific friends and my always kind supporters, the members of the press, to a private view of the new illusion to be introduced into Bulwer's romantic and dramatic literary creation called A Strange Story. The effect of the first appearance of the apparition on my illustrious audience was startling in the extreme and far beyond anything I could have hoped for and expected. So much so that, although I had previously settled to explain the whole modus operandi on that evening, I deferred doing so and went the next day to Mr. Cartmel, the patent agents, and took out a provisional patent for the ghost illusion in the names, at my request, of Dirks and Pepper. 
The day after the first evening I showed the ghost, Mr. Dirks came down to the Polytechnic, and after saying how much pleased he was with the manner in which I had introduced the illusion, ended by handing me a letter in which he spoke highly of my work in respect of the ghost and gave me spontaneously whatever profits might accrue from the invention. If that sounds a little defensive and self-justifying, there's a reason. Uh, The two men had a pretty significant falling out. Dirk claimed that he had been the one to actually invent the ghost. Pepper claimed to have already seen the idea in an 1831 book called Recreative Memoirs. And the disagreement between the two men festered, and Dirks published a book making his case, which was titled The Ghost as Produced in the Spectra Drama. And that told his side of the story, basically saying, like, I invented this, Pepper just has a big name, and he popularized it. Pepper published several articles giving his version of events, and the two men actually ended up in the Chancery Court. This was actually a bad move on Dirks's part because Pepper was a well-known and popular figure, and so he had prominent scientists on hand to give testimony to the transformative nature of Pepper's alterations to Dirks' original plans. The court found in Pepper's favor, but the two men continued to bicker about it. Even before the ghost illusion hit the London stage, Pepper wrote a book titled Boy's Playbook of Science, In the introduction, Pepper explains that the idea for the book is to give kids an introduction to scientific concepts that will enable them to transition to more advanced reading in the future. Quote, The following illustrated pages must be regarded as a series of philosophical experiments detailed in such a manner that any young person may perform them with the greatest facility. The author has endeavored to arrange the manipulations in a methodical, simple, and popular form, and will indeed be rewarded if these experiments should arouse dormant talent in any of the rising generation and lead them on gradually from the easy reading of the present boy's book to the study of the complete and perfect philosophical works of Leopold Mellon, Faraday, Brand, Graham, Turner, and Founds. He goes on to explain in the introduction that the concepts of science are all around us in the natural world and notes that one could think of animals as scientists of various sorts, pointing out that moles are meteorologists, beavers are architects, and wasps are paper manufacturers. His opening to the first chapter, which talks about matter and its impenetrability by way of discussing particulate density, is indicative of the no-nonsense way that he presents information. Quote, In the present state of our knowledge, it seems to be universally agreed that we cannot properly commence even popular discussions on astronomy, mechanics, and chemistry, or on the imponderables, heat, light, electricity, and magnetism, without a definition of the general term matter, which is an expression applied by philosophers to every species of substance capable of occupying space, and therefore to everything which can be seen and felt. This book was so successful that it was reprinted many times, and he also quickly wrote more to meet demand. In 1861, he published Playbook of Metals and Scientific Amusements for Young People. 1861 was a big writing year for Pepper. In addition to the two books we mentioned, his publisher, Routledge, asked him to update the book Scientific Dialogues intended for the instruction and entertainment of young people in which the first principles of natural and experimental philosophy are fully explained. That was originally written by Jeremiah Joyce in 1815, 
Pepper was tasked with making the book current to the 1860s by editing it to include scientific discoveries that had happened in the interim after the book first came out. In 1869, he published Cyclopedic Science Simplified. Yeah, he actually published quite a a number of books. And though the Polytechnic had been where Professor Pepper became a London mainstay of science entertainment... In 1872, after more than 20 years of working there, he and the organization had a falling out. The apparent crux of the matter was autonomy. Pepper wanted to do as he wished. He had raised the profile of the Polytechnic and was, to the public, its de facto ambassador. But even John Henry Pepper had bosses, which he didn't particularly enjoy, and the disagreements between him and the facility's directors led to the lecturer leaving. His break with the Polytechnic and subsequent move to the Egyptian Hall was big enough news to make the papers. In London's The Standard on April 2nd, 1872, the change was reported as follows, quote, For 20 years, Professor Pepper and the Polytechnic have been almost synonymous words. The Polytechnic was nothing in most people's minds without Professor Pepper, and that facile lecturer upon popular science was looked upon as really at home only in the halls of that familiar rendezvous in Regent Street. But the best of friends must part, and Professor Pepper and the Polytechnic have separated. Twenty years' service, pleasant, agreeable, amusing, and instructive service will not be overlooked by a generous public, and Professor Pepper and his new home will have, we feel sure, not lack of support. And then that article goes on to describe Pepper's new theater of popular science and entertainment that's being installed at the Egyptian theater and how it is decorated and furnished so that the audience will experience all new levels of comfort as they hear from the professor, including areas that are laid out, quote, in drawing room fashion. So you can relax on a couch while you hear him explain things. But the Egyptian hall arrangement turned out to be less successful than Pepper had hoped for. It was expensive to produce his lectures, and he wasn't making the money back. He seemed to slowly pull away from academic circles during this time, and in 1875, he was no longer a fellow at the Chemical Society. To try to rebuild his finances, Pepper went on tour with his science lectures crossing North America. And at the end of the 1870s, Pepper made the decision to head to Australia for an extended period of time. And we'll talk about that and his attempt to make rain after we hear from our sponsors. So as we mentioned before the break, after several years of the lecture circuit in Europe and the U.S., Pepper headed to Australia. This was intended to be a 12-month tour. Marianne and their son went with him. The family traveled aboard the Lusitania, Pepper was listed on the ship's record as having, quote, no occupation. This may have suggested he was some sort of down-on-his-luck drifter, but in fact, Australia was very excited to have him. I like that we got a little confirmation that his wife and son, who we know nothing about, still exist. (laughs) Yes, me too. Ahead of his arrival, one Australian newspaper reported, quote, for nearly a third of a century, the name of Professor Pepper has been associated with popular science, chiefly in connection with the Polytechnic Institute of London, but frequently in the list of new inventors, and not seldom as the champion of valuable practical improvements, such as Bessemer steel, the electric light, modernized means of locomotion, etc., 
Who among us whose school days were passed in England anywhere between the years 1845 and 1870 does not remember the Polytechnic and its wondrous variety of attractions, chief amongst which stood the facile lecturer and his brilliant experiments? The amount of solid good affected by his lectures to working men, his classes for teaching chemistry, physics, French, German, and mathematics, at the lowest possible fees, availed of by thousands of Londoners, is not easily estimated. Pepper got right to work after arriving. He gave a lecture at St. George's Hall on July 12th. That was just a week after the Lusitania had made port. And this was touted as, quote, one of the best scientific exhibitions that a Melbourne audience had seen. This lecture, which he toured around Australia, was almost like a phantasmagoria. There were apparitions, dancing skeletons, and optical illusions. But in Pepper's case, he explained how it was done as part of the show. One critic wrote, quote, It is hardly possible to imagine an entertainment more taking or more interesting and, at the same time, so full of really useful information as that given by Professor Pepper. Although he started his time in Australia to great fanfare, over time, interest and audience waned, and so Pepper took a stab at a new venture. He wrote, produced, and acted in a play titled Hermes and the Alchemist, which he debuted in Sydney. The plot was built to showcase some of Pepper's trademark illusionary trickery, but this show flopped. Soon, Pepper went back to lecturing. He took a brief trip back to England, but returned to Australia, getting to Adelaide in late August 1880 with a new staff that he had hired in London in tow. He gave lectures, as he had before, once again touring, but ran into legal trouble when one of his employees tried to sue him for unpaid wages. Pepper's response was that the man had been a very bad employee, but the court found in favor of the worker whose name was John Saunders, and Pepper had to pay what he owed him. Though he had found the entire business insulting, Pepper tried to put it behind him by going back to his lecture tour and trying to drum up attendance. Sorry you feel insulted, Pepper, but you gotta pay your employees. Yeah, apparently as part of it, once John Saunders had filed this complaint, Pepper was actually arrested and he was mortified that he was arrested in public. Um, But yes, (laughs) I feel like there's so much more to that story than we really have a record of, but... It reminds me a little bit of Lola Montez, just being like, that didn't, that wasn't me. That's not my real name. (laughs) Who was supposed to pay you your pay? During the time that Pepper and his family were in Australia, a couple of interesting things were happening back in London. So first, in 1880, Boy's Playbook of Science got a significant revision, not from Pepper, but from Thomas Craddock Hepworth, who had taken over Pepper's position at the Royal Polytechnic. The title of the book was also changed to Boy's Book of Science, and the tone of it was generally perceived as being less exuberant. That book, incidentally, was revised again in 1912 by John Maston. Second, the Royal Polytechnic closed its doors. It had been having financial problems, but then a stone staircase in the building collapsed and the cost of the repair was more than it could afford. The equipment and space were sold off over the course of three days in 1882. It was purchased and reopened, and today it's part of the University of Westminster. Also in 1882, Pepper attempted a massive feat. 
The summer of 1882 was extremely hot, and southeast Queensland was having, like, a minor drought. So John Henry Pepper decided he would try to make it rain. His plan, which he advertised as tapping the clouds, involved a giant kite and explosives. He intended to use the kite to raise a landmine into the clouds with a steel wire running from the kite to the earth. And he would, he said, detonate the mine midair in order to, quote, alter the electrical conditions of the clouds. 700 people showed up at the farm that he had secured for this cloud tapping, and each of them paid to watch. Uh, I don't feel like this should come as a surprise, but things did not go as planned. (laughs) Here's what happened in the words of one of Pepper's assistants. Quote, the professor had the kite constructed so that it could be easily conveyed through the bush. It was much too heavy, even for two smart horses, and we could not get the kite to rise higher than 30 or 40 yards. This part of the experiment was last given up as a failure. The whole of the guns were loaded, then the course was cleared, and after firing the mine containing the dynamite, I fired the guns in rapid succession. Uh, He then described a terrifying misfire with one of the guns in which miraculously no one was injured. And then he concluded with, quote, that was our first and last trial at tapping the clouds for rain. Pepper had intended to try again using lighter materials. Seems like a good idea. I mean, it's not a good idea, but if you're going to take it up there by (laughs) kite, uh, probably should be lighter materials. It seems that that plan was abandoned, though. He had been on to the idea of cloud seeding with some of his preparation, but inducing precipitation manually wouldn't really move forward until decades later. Instead of a second attempt at making rain, he went back to giving performance lectures and then started an educational endeavor called Professor Pepper's Laboratory, where he taught classes in practical chemistry and the physical sciences as part of the Brisbane School of Arts. Among the lectures he offered, he included advice for people intending to file patents. He transitioned away from performance and onto teaching on a regular schedule. But by the mid-1880s, enrollment was down, and he was at odds with the school board in much the same way that he had butted heads with the directors of the Polytechnic in London. Yeah, there's a lot uh, you will find written about how he was just this, like, very flamboyant showman, and he was very confident in the way he approached things, and when anyone criticized him or asked him to change it, he would get very angry about it. I feel like I know this person. We all do. (laughs) We all do. I've probably been that person at various points. Uh, Then he found himself in another legal battle, but this one was initiated by Pepper, and it was over an agreement regarding the farmland that he had been leasing. So when he started renting it, the owner of the land had promised that he would eventually sell Pepper the property, and Pepper had built a home on it. At the time that he started renting, the owner was panning for gold on the property, and they had kind of made a deal like, when you're done and you're confident you have panned whatever there is to get out of this, like, then you'll finish that and sell me the property. And he was like, of course I will. But instead of selling to the Englishman, the owner had mortgaged the property without telling his tenant. This case was a little bit of a mess. There's a whole element of spiritualism and testimony that was going on in the courtroom happening in this very strange way. And it was eventually found in Pepper's favor, but it did not ultimately keep Pepper in Australia. Less than two years later, after a decade away, he decided to return home to England. 
After arriving in London in 1889, Pepper tried going back to his illusion shows. He trotted out the ghost on stage again. But in the years since he had been gone, the tastes of the city's audiences had changed. There just wasn't a draw for Pepper's style of show anymore, and he retired from performing in 1890. Yeah, also so many of the people that probably would have been his target audience were like, I saw this when I was in school. I know how it works. Like, why would they pay to go see the whole thing again? There was never that moment of, ooh, how is he doing that? Because they'd be like, I know how he does that. Um, And that same year that he retired, 1890, Pepper wrote a book outlining all that had happened regarding the Pepper's ghost illusion in a book titled A True History of the Ghost and All About Metempsychosis. And it is from that book that we quoted earlier when he was talking about Dirks's work. He seems to have really wanted to make the case at the end of his life that he had not done anything wrong by Dirks. And he makes a note that Dirks had applied for a patent on his own before Pepper modified the concept and that that patent had been denied. Pepper also noted in the book that so many people attempted to create their own ghost illusion imitations that he had to have notices printed in papers warning the public about the fakes that were touring. One such notice read, quote, On public grounds, I venture to call your attention to the fact that many persons are now going about the country endeavoring to pirate effects to be produced by the apparatus patented by Mr. Dirks and myself, and to deceive the public by giving them an exhibition with which they are certain to be disgusted, and with which I have nothing to do. I beg to enclose one of the numerous statements I have received from different parts of the country alluding to the imposture now so commonly practiced. Yeah, he was basically like putting these in various papers and then asking the editor to include additional information. Uh, you'll note that he mentioned specifically that Mr. Dirks was part of it and part of the patent, and it seems like that may have been part of the issue, was that Dirks got really, really frustrated that everybody started calling the ghost Pepper's ghost when he was like, and Dirks. Um, And Pepper always said, like, I said your name every time I did it. That's not my fault. And now you're angry because you're not getting credit in public. Um, And that seems like really the crux of that argument, Mm. but... In his retirement, Pepper moved to Leightonstone in Essex, and on March 25, 1900, he died at his home there on Colworth Road. His obituary in the London Daily News read in part, quote, To the younger generation, Professor Pepper and Pepper's ghost are little more than names. But to those who remember the Polytechnic as it was 40 years ago, the announcement that John Henry Pepper is dead will recall a form of entertainment that at one time enjoyed immense vogue. When Pepper died, he thought interest in his ghost illusion had really died out. But today, Pepper's ghost is still in use. We've mentioned it on the show before. The ballroom scene in Disney's Haunted Mansion attraction is one massive execution of the Pepper's ghost illusion. But more technologically advanced versions of it continue to be used as well. If you recall the 2012 appearance of the deceased performer Tupac alongside Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg that was touted by a lot of people as a hologram, you may know that was absolutely not a hologram. It was a high-tech iteration of Pepper's Ghost. Yeah. And now there are even, like, specialized types of glass finishes that people will use to create really, really photoreal Uh, Pepper's ghost style illusions. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times they'll reflect not 
like a, a physical person or a statue, but instead like an image that's on a digital screen in the the area you can't see onto it, mm-hmm. um, which allows those intensive, really, really convincing animations to happen. Pepper's ghost still alive and well, which I think is sweet. Um, I have some thoughts about John Henry Pepper. I will share them in the Friday episode. Okay. <laughs> Uh, But in the meantime, I have a listener mail from our listener, Allison, who is responding to another listener mail. It's quite charming. Uh, She writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I was listening to your episode on William Palmer, when to my surprise, you began reading your listener mail on Granny Smith from Allison. And this took me surprised because I, Allison, was sure that I had not already sent you my listener mail on Granny Smith who was at the moment sitting in my drafts folder. It was only when that Allison told you she is an American living near Ride that our emails even began to differ in content. My content on your Granny Smith eponymous food episode is actually a bit different than that. I have an ancestor that, according to a news article of the time of Maria Ann Smith's death, was part of the lore of the creation of the now-famous apple variety. Mr. Lawless of Barara, I'm going to guess that I pronounced that terribly, um, so my apologies, which is Allison's ancestor, is credited with giving Maria the very French crabapple crate that went on to produce the sapling on the creek edge. My father keeps a copy of this news article as part of his genealogy research for both his and my mother's sides of our family. I would have loved to have included it in this email. However, due to various circumstances, it was unavailable. I love binge listening to your episodes at my job as a sewing machinist producing bedding. Keep up the good work. Uh, There's so much to unpack here that I love. One, how incredibly cool that your dad has this this piece of information in his genealogy Mm -hmm. records. Two, I love that you're a professional sewing machinist, although I also know in case anyone thinks I'm romanticizing that that is a hard job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My mom did that job for exactly one day because she was a very good seamstress, as I've said before, and came home and said, I cannot do that. That's not sewing the way I like to do it. <laughs> it's just factory sewing is a whole different deal. Um, but thank you for this. It's very funny that two Allisons had a similar relationship with Granny Smith apples. And I love it. Uh, if you have relationships with any of our eponymous foods or with Pepper's Ghost or anything else we've talked about on the show, you can write to us about it. That email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you haven't subscribed, there's no time like the present. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.